1: One-size-fits-all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: I'm going to ask Catherine to start with a short reading. So I'm gonna read a little bit from the first um, few pages.
3: In the awful, wearying months in which Harvey Weinstein's ritualistic mistreatment of women was being recounted daily in the media, I found myself, like so many others, wondering and talking about the men in my life, ex-boyfriends, ex-stalkers, ex-harassers, ex-gropers. My friends and I looked back, fitfully, in agitation, at the things we had endured, the things we had kept silent about. And we looked around at the things that were bothering us now. Throughout the autumn and winter, we told and retold stories, seeing them in a new light, gently mentioning things we knew about one another's lives, murky memories, events we had not mentioned for years. We talked with a renewed anger and frankness, a renewed sense of permission in so doing, and perhaps too a renewed sense of simplicity We were questioning all the men in our lives, all the forms of patriarchal power, but we rarely spoke about our fathers. Soon after the allegations against him were published, Weinstein's wife Georgina Chapman announced she was leaving him. I kept thinking, what about his children? You can at least in principle leave a husband, but you can't leave a father. In her poem, Sunday Night, Sharon Olds describes her father during family meals in restaurants, putting his hand up a waitress's skirt if he could, hand, wrist, forearm. Olds notes that she never warned the young women. Whoop, he would go, as if we were having fun together. She fantasizes sticking a fork in his arm, hearing the squeak of muscle, feeling the skid on bone. Sometimes she writes... I imagine my way back into the skirts of the women my father hurt, those bells of twilight, those sacred, tented woods. I want to sweep, tidy, stack. Whatever I can do, clean the stable of my father's mind. Sharon Old's project is reparative. She wants to heal the wounds her father has inflicted. She wants to use language to restore dignity and pleasure. Can words rewind time, undo harms? We might wish they could, but who are we when we make this attempt? Who are we writing as? Contemporary feminism has re-embraced thinking about the big ideas, capitalism, work, care, and the concept of patriarchy is having a resurgence. In the waves of marches after Donald Trump's inauguration, it is featured heavily on banners. It circulates widely in highly Instagrammable commodities on T-shirts, mugs, tote bags, It's rolling around the mouths of pundits, commentators, and politicians. It's made a public comeback. But for all the talk of patriarchy, has feminism forgotten about fathers? Fathers and the heterosexual family more widely are held in thrall. The relentless mawkishness of corporate advertising, whether for washing up liquid or mortgages, features often childlike, cartoonish family figures dazedly embracing the requisite familial milestones. Marriage, fond exasperation with muddy children, the family car signing on the dotted line. And the cult of the family has extended beyond the heterosexual, not least because the right to a family life has been so cruelly forbidden to so many. The fight for equal marriage and equal parenting rights, the fight for equality and citizenship is necessary and urgent. Yet as Garth Greenwell has put it, fighting for these rights of citizenship comes with a risk the risk that queer lives are translated into value that can be understood and approved of by people who hate queers. These days, sentimental dads get a lot of cultural cachet. New fathers, misty-eyed, proclaim their feminism when they first hold their newborn baby daughter. Overnight, they're transformed into heroic defenders of women's rights, though this is a defence that blurs into a defence of their daughter's purity. It relies, in other words, on an identification with a predatory masculinity that a father knows but now disavows. He sees into the dark soul of masculinity now that he loves a creature he realizes is vulnerable to its violence. And the adulation a father receives when he does the mundane, relentless work of parenting, when he helps with the children or babysits them, reveals how ordinary acts of parental work and care add a glow of sanctity to a father while passing unnoticed because expected in a mother. A hands-on mother is a mother, the statement is a tautology, while a hands-on father is a saint. We love the good daddy. Our contemporary concern about men, the men who perpetrate, enable, or turn a blind eye to violence against women, tends to hone in on men in our lives other than our fathers, our partners, friends, colleagues, bosses. Many, perhaps most of these men, are fathers too. Discontent with fathers has increasingly been privatized within feminist discourse. Daddy issues have been relegated to the realm of personal problems. Yet fathers wield troubling power, whether they like it or not, and whether they claim or disown the patriarchal role history has given them. Valerie Solanas, in her Scum Manifesto of 1967, wrote that the old-fashioned, ranting, raving brute is preferable to the modern, civilized father, as the brute is so ridiculous he can be easily despised. Many men, perhaps aided by the saccharine cadences of advertising and buoyed by the admiring compliments of strangers, are learning how to be better daddies. But if we really want to think through the perpetuation of violence towards women, and towards all those deemed inferior in the hierarchy of masculine power, then we have to honour Solanus' thought. We have to keep the modern, civilised father on the hook.
0: It's interesting that the household gods of your book, Freud, Winnicott and, and the others, are also deeply familiar to me and part of my own writing practice, They all write about what it's like to be an adequate mother, and I was thinking about how the verb to mother is a practice. Mothering is looking after a child, whereas to father a child is biological. It's about conception. There's interestingly little 20th-century advice about being a good father, and an awful lot about how to be a good mother. Too Mm. much, perhaps. Where are we now with this? I was thinking about Weinstein, Me Too... What is the relationship between these the idea of toxic masculinity, which is very current for us, and the daddy issue? I mean, I suppose I
3: feel that there's a peculiar disjunction between Mm -hmm. those two things. That you know, while on the one hand there's this kind of efflorescence of, on the one hand, portrayals of fatherhood. I mean, there are so many films and Mm -hmm. novels that are, um, you know, trying to portray, I think, essentially the masculinity that is at the heart of those kind of notions of fatherhood. And then there's so much cultural conversation that, you know, has repeatedly been happening about sexual violence, about harassment, and, you know, we all kind of rediscover it as if as if it was new and as if tomorrow everything will be great because there is so much in the media about it. But I suppose that's exactly what I found puzzling, is that sort of absence at the heart of that conversation about toxic masculinity that you know, and I don't want to say that no one is thinking about this and no one is writing about that, but I did find it really striking in mm. the last couple of years that, that there's such an eagerness to think about. And, and even that phrase, toxic masculinity, you know, which is a useful phrase, but like all these phrases, a are kind of heuristic that can have its own, yes. you know, ways of closing down conversation or not examining things adequately, that those things are not joined up mm. at all. Yes. And that's very puzzling to me.
0: Mostly as the mother of teenage boys, more than as a novelist, I worry a lot about the phrase toxic masculinity, because if you're a 15- or 16-year-old boy and the adjective most frequently mm. associated with masculinity is toxic, then what are you inheriting? Where, where is the space that you can grow up into? Yeah. Do you think we're going to find a space between that, that sentimental portrayal, and deeply conservative in some ways, portrayal of fatherhood and the toxicity of me too. I mean I hope so
3: but I think it's I think it's really difficult for fathers to think about their role in the perpetuation of toxic masculinity or patriarchy or you know whatever phrase we want to use precisely because you know the love the love of children is a very deep and heartfelt and sincere feeling I'm assuming (laughs) Um, and I think it's I think it's hard to hold those two things together. Yeah. And, you know, in, in all of our minds, that's something difficult to think about how our kind of personal individual relationships can be at the same time deeply genuine and completely overdetermined and shaped yes. by structural factors yes. that we don't always have the wherewithal to intervene in. Yeah. And, I'm, and I mean that, you know, in relation to men as well as women, to women as well as men. I mean, I find I find it really interesting, sort of talking to friends of mine who are fathers who have read this, and and I sort of detect in myself a kind of anxiety about what it's like for them to read it. And you know, some some of my father friends have felt kind of quite affected by it, and sort of have said to me, you know, you're you're completely right, <laughs> and it's it's all terrible. And I mean, I don't think the book is saying that it's all terrible, but you know, they they feel quite kind of um, punched in the gut by it. And my response tends to be that you know, I think it's really a cursed role. I think it's a poisoned mm-hmm. chalice. I mean, yeah. like, like all our social roles, because yes. we are all having to find a way to disentangle ourselves from social norms that are so powerful. But that, you know, you can do good within <laughs> it. So, yeah. I, you know, I try to, I try to hold out hope for the reflectiveness mm. within that role. But the, I, I also imagine that the private experience of parenting is so overwhelming and so intense that, that in a, for a lot of people it does invite precisely the kind of reflection that I'm urging in the book. Yes. I assume. I hope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's partly an issue of vocabulary, isn't it? And we've spent a lot of time thinking of new words and new metaphors for mothering and femininity mm. and really interrogating the, the possibilities of womanhood and perhaps not done that work so much with masculinity and manhood. Mm.
3: Yeah, I find it interesting with Instagram. I mean, like the the book had a lot of different roots, but one of the kind of little flashes of, you know, things that kind of come across your your screen that made me think I did want to write about fathers was pictures on Instagram of of dads Mm. doing dad things and saying dadding it. So kind of hashtag dadding it. And then also um, photos that women were putting up, especially around Father's Day, these kind of very amorous photos of them and their fathers and you know very loving moving tributes to their fathers and I found I found that sort of quite intriguing because I mean partly because you know anything that we do on social media has its kind of performative element and I don't mean that in a dismissive way I don't mean performative as in fake but I mean sometimes the things that we insist on very loudly in the public sphere are the things that are the most painful in the private sphere and I sort of found myself wondering in those kind of you know very touching portrayals of father-daughter relationships whether they were actually speaking to something much more painful which is you know in a world where you're looking around and especially in the last couple of years and that phase during me too when every day turning on the radio felt like a kind of you know a risky thing or you know just intervene inter- um, interacting with the news in any way it felt frightening because you would see more evidence of how much men hate women or want to kind of keep them down in the public and private sphere I found it interesting that there was also so much kind of effusion of love Mm. for fathers some of whom are doing these things to women in the public sphere and the
0: private sphere it struck me that in some ways that's a version of the heterosexual woman's dilemma isn't it yeah how how can you think about well how can you think about power without eroticizing it yeah. And they, I mean, this is not particularly about eroticizing power, but how can you love the man who is more powerful than you yeah. and be a feminist? Yeah. And that's quite fundamental to a lot of female sexuality.
3: Yeah. So. Yeah, and that's definitely something I wanted to explore in the book as well, Was that especially given the, the sort of um, post Me Too. Just just the way in which these you know terms are circulating so much in the public sphere now in a way that they really weren't five or ten years yeah. ago, or you know that it's so much more possible to make reference to things like sexual harassment um, since the stuff that's happened in the last two years i sorry i' I've, I've
0: on what <laughs> what was I was thinking, well, in relation to fatherhood, thinking about yes. kind of personal and personal love and yeah. the, the structural problems and how that relates yeah. to the problem with heterosexuality yeah, so was, and power. I
3: was thinking a lot about, um, about anger and about the sort mm-hmm. of rage that a lot of uh, us, I think, were feeling at the time and, you know, <laughs> feel in general about uh, the way the world is going. And I was trying to figure out, you know, my own individual relationship to that anger and thinking about the kind of, in a way, the, the fantasy of, of, like, ejecting these toxic men from the workplace. And, you know, people getting sacked or resigning. Or, and that, that those experiences can be so gratifying as a yes. woman when you, you feel like, OK, finally somebody who has been really horrendous towards women is, you know, is getting his comeuppance. And, it, and it, can, it can be really gratifying to see the kind of bad man, you know, meet his downfall. But I was also aware that there some, there's something, there's something kind of splitting that goes on in one's mind in relation to that. If if you have any kind of relationship to a man, which you know lots of people do, like either as partners or as fathers or relatives or whatever it is, that you know some of whom you love <laughs> very much. So I was interested in that question of um, how to try and put those two things together mm-hmm. and not not separate them out so kind of neatly, because again, I feel like that's something that happens. In the kind of public discourse about these things, that you know we're all quite understandably feeling very righteous about how men like Weinstein shouldn't be allowed to have that kind of power, but at the same time, how do you negotiate your own anger mm-hmm. towards you know the category of men <laughs> who do enjoy certain privileges um, in relation to women? In, you know in a way that doesn't split off your mm. own feelings of love and your own feelings of hostility, which is where the book you know begins to be an exploration of the relationship between love and hostility in kind of infant development and the rest of life.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that that narrative comes from Winnicott because most of you probably know Winnicott's idea that the mother needs to be able to withstand the child's aggression. you, know, you have to survive your, your child's rage with you and, and return it. It's interesting that we don't have a model for that that involves fathers mm. or men. There's no sense that men have to withstand their own destruction. Mm. And I know Winnicott says anybody can do this job, but actually he's, he's always talking about mothers, yeah. and it's certainly been received by the wider culture as a comment about motherhood rather than yeah. parenthood. Yeah,
3: yeah. And, I, and I think there's something kind of curious and um, just kind of, you know, noteworthy okay. about the fact that I've written something about fathers that features so heavily psychoanalytic thought about mothers and that that is also interesting I mean it speaks to that kind of absence in a way um in the in the literature perhaps but um but also that you know that a lot of the psychoanalytic literature on early parenting and on development is of course stuff that we can you know apply to different areas of our lives and different individuals in them because you know we never we never see anyone as they are we always see them through the fog of our parents but yeah i do I do find that really interesting that there that there's so much interesting literature on the uses of anger in women mm. i mean there are so there are so many self help books that that sort of focus on sort of harnessing one's rage and you know channeling it into appropriate kind of social outlets or into ambition and like Harriet Lerner's book from the sixties maybe it was such an important book in that sense, but obviously, anger features so differently. For men and women, yes. and is, are experienced very differently, and are met with very differently in the kind of in the social world. Yeah, I mean, I, your question makes me think it would be interesting to kind of flip yeah. that question and yeah. think about, you know, what would a version of this book look like that was about men reckoning with with their hostility, also their hostility to their mothers yes. that they have to kind of overcome in order to be socially functioning
0: <laughs> beings or not <laughs> yes because we always scared. male anger is frightening I mean I think men but probably men more than women these days have have reason to fear male anger I mean thinking about mm. rates of assault on young you know, young men are perennially vulnerable to male violence women's anger is not frightening in the same way it might be funny or they might be crazy but it's not it's not fundamentally yeah. threatening
3: yeah and also I guess the way in which it intersects with race in the sense that like mm-hmm. the anger of the Trump supporters is also deeply threatening to yes. this non-white anyone.
0: <laughs> yes. And I'm thinking also now about the psychoanalytic tendency to construct... The, I think about the father as narrator, the father as storyteller. <laughs> you quote Virginia Woolf saying of Lovely Stephen that it would have been so much easier if he'd been able to say, I am jealous rather than you are selfish mm-hmm. when his, mm-hmm. when. When Stella is yes. getting married and leaving home, yes. yeah, his stepdaughter. Um, so he, Leslie Stephen is very controlling at that point, wants, wants Stella not to get married, holds it up for months, I think. And Virginia Woolf makes this lovely observation that it would have been better for everybody if Leslie Stephen had been able mm-hmm. to say, I am jealous rather than you are selfish. And I was thinking about how many of the psychoanalytic writers that you're interested in here are about storytelling by the father. It really Mm. understands the family as a patriarchal narrative, which, of course, it is, but in terms of writing and fiction, that's quite interesting. Mm. And I was thinking then about genre here, that you're roaming spectacularly from Instagram to the archers through popular films and into fiction. From an academic point of view, that's quite a brave thing to do, to (laughs) put Ivanka Trump next to literary fiction. Virginia Woolf. What sense do you have of the different work of those genres in relation to daddy issues? One of the things
3: that sort of generated the book, the essay, was, like I've said, that kind of feeling that there there was something that was absent Mm. that I couldn't see, but that I could see it in so many places, including your amazing ghost war um and sophie McIntosh's the water cure and in films like tony erdman by um german filmmaker called marin ade and deborah Brannick's film leave Mm. no trace you know there there were these there were these places where i felt that there was something really interesting being done in terms of, of putting together that sort of really private experience in the family of of where daughters you know and sons but Suppose I'm focusing primarily on daughters, learn the kind of the primacy of the male ego and they sort of, they learn the social order through the heterosexual mm. kind of family unit and where that is being put together with kind of larger, you know, reverberating daddy roles, yes. you know, patriarchal roles. Yes. So, in, you know, in Ghost War, one of the things I found so interesting was the way in which that, you know, incredibly domineering father is, seems to me using a kind of fantasy of mm. purity to dominate his daughter and his wife, but also to legitimate a sort of xenophobic uh, view of the world. So where, you know, where the idea of boundaries and rules and the kind of the original state from which we spring are doing like really, really important motivating work in both misogyny... And racism. So yeah. So the kind of the journey of the book was kind of thinking, oh, there's this thing that I'm not I'm not seeing. I don't know where to see it, but I was I was seeing it in places that you know were fictional. Hmm. Um, I think we're doing kind of really interesting feminist sort of philosophical thinking yeah. without being you know without doing doing feminism in a sort of you know yeah. self conscious label sort of yeah. way.
0: I was wondering thinking about Freud and the history of fiction, the history of parenting how far one could suggest that fiction is actually one of the tools for for switching that narrative focus away from the daddy. Mm -hmm. Because if we go back to the 18th century, Wollstonecraft, Burney, The Beginnings of Austen, those novels are largely, and this is a huge generalisation, but largely about the narratives of daughters, the narratives of young women. Mm in a way that seems oddly harder to do in non-fiction. I mean, I always think when people you know, ask a variant of the question of how does it feel to be a woman writer or how does it feel to be a woman novelist, well, women have owned, fi- you know, have owned English mm-hmm. fiction from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It, it's belonged to women from its inception mm-hmm. in the 18th century. So I was wondering how far the work of fiction here might be radically different from the work of non-fiction psychoanalysis mm-hmm. essays. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I write nonfiction, Mm. but I suppose I,
3: you know, as you were saying, like I'm I'm using, I'm always using a real range of sources, you know, from the high to the (laughs) lowbrow. I suppose that the way in which that question kind of poses itself often for me is is the question of being a woman writer writing sort of personally in some way. So, you know, this book is, every book is personal (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Every book is about its author in some way. And this one doesn't talk specifically about my family or my father, yeah. it's you know, it's suffused by personal interests, but it's not autobiographical or it or it doesn't sort of explicitly talk about my own life. But in general my own writing, you know, if I if I try to have some kind of perspective on it, which is difficult, is is animated by the way in which those kind of big questions mm-hmm. about gender and power, how they manifest themselves in the minutiae of personal relationships you know in my life in my family's life and so for me that's that's always felt like the kind of natural way to write but it's true that in a lot of my writing I am using Hmm. a lot of fiction because I suppose fiction and various non-fictional forms so I'm using those kind of together in contrast to perhaps like more uh what's the word like constatative writing you know declarative writing so writing that can roam around a subject that can kind of Uh, you know, put put something up to the light and try and, you know, see through the pattern that that comes up. That kind of writing is often a much richer place to explore Mm. questions of of power and structures because sometimes it's easier to evoke something through a pattern than it is to describe it. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of academic writing is really difficult to read. It's because it's difficult to describe the world in declarative sentences
0: (laughs) without it becoming quite cumbersome yeah <laughs> absolutely so I was thinking reading unmastered and I, w- I was wondering about teaching it because I teach a module on gender feminism sexuality mm-hmm. and, and romance fiction mean, Romance fiction is broadly conceived I'm talking Austin and Bronte not Julie Cooper mm-hmm. um, but I was thinking about how much time we spend there talking about the erotics of power and whether mm-hmm. we can separate mm-hmm. sexuality from power and thinking about how directly unmastered addresses that and it seemed to me that part of what you're doing when, when you write about writing here, as well as in your own writing, is thinking about the, the role and the power of writing to do, do that work of refining and separating and looking. And you've got that lovely Foucault quote at the beginning of Unmastered. About, I did write it down because I thought you might not have Unmastered with you. I can't remember it now, so I'm going to it. Yes, you forget books as time goes by. You say, one goes about telling with the greatest precision whatever is most difficult to tell. And I thought, yes, that's exactly how I think about writing fiction Mm. as well, that you go into thinking about ambivalence, contradiction, ambiguity, and it's about making finer and finer distinctions, not going Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. the easy binary choices. Mm. That seems to me to be a very political thing to do at the moment. I mean, not you know, there is the obvious binary choice, but there are, there are others. We're used mm-hmm. to a very loud political discourse at the moment with no space for ambiguity, difficulty, contradiction. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about how you're using non-fiction to do work that I think of as kind of intrinsically fictional, which was, mm-hmm. was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, the way you describe that really resonates with my feelings about what I was trying to do with Unmastered, in a sense, which was to try and explore the spaces that felt like they were harder to talk about directly, yes. I suppose. And, and, it, and as you say, I mean, it's very complicated because there are, there are the obvious binary choices as far as I'm concerned. You know, yeah. One is a feminist. Yes. One doesn't vote for Trump or Boris Johnson yeah. or whoever. But, but I suppose one of the things I feel very committed to like flying the flag for within sort of, you know, broadly feminist thought is like the importance of um, trying to capture the texture of how power is lived mm. in yeah. a life. Because, yes, you know, there, there are stark truths that I believe in, but I also think that um, a feminism that require or, or any kind of system of thought that requires you to be somehow untruthful about the murky complexity and discomfort of being a person is not one that I'm ever going to be able to get on board with. And, some, and sometimes that, you know, that leads you to very subtle positions yes. that sometimes don't sit very comfortably with, you know, the world that, that does require you to to kind of come down on one mm. side or another of the debate. Um, so I feel like, you know, that's a, that's a constant tension in, in life is like the tension between like you know, <laughs> voting for the right person and just, you know, or, or just saying you know, deciding whose side you're on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, being able to say that sometimes you don't know, sometimes you feel, you know, you have contradictory feelings at once, sometimes you have thoughts and feelings and desires that make you feel uncomfortable. Mm. And that that seems to me like a really important thing to hold on to, almost especially in a world where the horrors going around us do in, tend to trigger, um, understandably, you know, the very, very stark positions, because... There are things to be very stark about, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I suppose in general, I worry that that sometimes it can be hard to preserve that space of, like, really fine-grained texture. Yes,
0: absolutely. There's a lot about how embattled we've all become that really works against that that fine-grained texture. And it's more complicated, of course, where, when we're thinking about sexuality or fatherhood, Mm. there's a sense that some of that murkiness, some of that ambiguity is culturally or socially mandated, Mm. Are you betraying yourself? Are you betraying feminism? Are you betraying women? If I don't know, you want daddy to look after you, or mm. you like being dominated, or what, you know, whatever yeah. the issue is. It's not. It's not personal, as, yeah. as we know, it can never be personal. So how do you, how do you navigate that murkiness while remaining politically alert? I'm not really expecting you to answer that, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's difficult, but.
3: Um... I suppose I feel that, I mean, myself personally, how I navigate that is that, you know, my tools are quite philosophical and often quite psychoanalytic Mm. because, you know, psychoanalysis is such an important space for that murkiness and and for, for, you know, a space in which you can say that you have a feeling... That you are also disgusted by or ashamed of or you know where you can have a contradictory relationship to yourself which which I think is something in general in the public realm that is really discouraged you know we're supposed to know what we want and know who we are and declaim it very proudly and plow on in this very self-knowing way and that that is just not my experience of knowing a person so um, that doesn't really work for me so yeah in terms of my writing I suppose I, I kind of use the tools that help me to keep you know trying to create that sort of web of um, of what I think of as kind of reality, but I also think that you know politically you need different kinds of people in the world i am not I'm not someone who w- would ever be able to like i don't know mount some massive campaign or, or become a politician or you know there, there are different ways of being political in the world, and I think that that we need them all and and that you know I think writers and artists are often doing really important political work, but it's it manifests itself in a different Kind of tone or modality, and I think that's that's fine.
0: And that's good. <laughs> I sometimes tell myself that when I know there are going to be four people at the demo in Coventry, and I don't really want to be number five. Right. You know, my my work in the world is just different. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, it can also be self-serving, and it can yes. be a
3: way to sort of. I wasn't suggesting no. self-serving. No, no, no. no but I, I think just, that's yes. you know, I think that's definitely a, a, a danger of being that sort of thinker and that sort of yes, you know, political mind is that sometimes you do retreat, and sometimes you know you could be at the barricades more and I, you know, I I would like to be but I don't like crowds, so.
0: (laughs) If we bring that murkiness back to thinking about the daddy issue, how does it look? I mean, when I first Mm. read this, I thought, gosh, I wonder how her friends who are fathers think about this. I wonder indeed how her father thinks about this. There's not much space left Mm. for being a good father. Mm. How do we bring that murkiness and ambivalence back to the idea of fatherhood?
3: I think that I mean when I when I was writing the book I felt like I began I you know I began with rage <laughs> um, but you know also curiosity and I was thinking a lot about Valerie Salonis's mm. Manifesto that I mentioned that you know is such a such an amazing text of pure rage but also an incredibly interesting and prescient sort of you know interrogation and it's amazingly written and I was kind of I was sort of I felt like I was in that sort of zone, and I was very interested in the way that she was trying to um, well, she was deadly serious about what she was saying yeah. you know eliminate the money system, institute complete automation and destroy the male sex and part of what 's really exciting about that book is that she is completely serious about yes. it like it's not it's not playful i mean yeah. it, it's written in a very playful way, but I don't think she was mm-hmm. being playful about that she yes. you know she genuinely thought that was what we needed to do, and I was kind of really interested in that as a tone for writing. Um, But I also knew that that's not my kind of, I'm not, you know, I'm not not, not that kind of writer. And then, you know, the Virginia Woolf material, which, you know, she's always a big part of my kind of thinking and writing, which is, you know, precisely the opposite. Like she, you know, she, she sort of weaves these incredibly intricate, beautiful, complex pictures. And she is always so ambivalent and she is almost phobic of the statement rather than the kind of, you know, slippery approach to something. And I feel like both at the level of style, but also in a way at the level of content, there's something of that kind of um, dance between those two modes that is in this book. Hmm. And, you know, the the beginning bit that I read is very like, this is my manifesto about how dads are bad. And obviously, (laughs) obviously I don't think all dads are bad. I felt that in the process of writing it, I... I also really began to grapple and, to, and to try and want to try and put on the page a feeling of grappling, with of course the fact that mm. you never have a pure feeling, at least I don't. I never have pure um, rage or pure hostility or pure anger towards, you know, we're, we're made angry by the people that we're invested in or people that we love. And so I was interested in kind of opening up the book towards that sort of reckoning with, the fact that you know i feel a great deal of anger towards the way in which men mistreat women in the world you know private and public level but i also feel love <laughs> for a lot of yes. men and um and i suppose i was you know using the psychoanalytic material partly to to try and kind of capture that texture and to try and make the case that not only is the expression of rage important purely for the expression of rage mm-hmm. but it's it's an important part of being able to have a real encounter with the other. Yeah. So only when, I mean, as you were saying kind of earlier on, you know, the the Winnicott idea that it's only through the, the kind of management of hostility and rage that the relationship between the infant and the mother can flourish and enable the child to become a person in a way. And I think in this, what I'm trying to make the case for is that in order to fully experience our own kind of subjectivity and personhood we have to reckon with that anger and you know examine it from all sides but we also have to express it to Mm -hmm. the men in our lives that we love because if we don't do that we're not having a kind of real encounter with them because all we're doing is echoing you know mirroring their narcissistic fear that we hate them
0: so Mm -hmm. paradoxically
3: to say you know I hate you or I feel rage towards you is one of the steps that you have to take in order to be able to kind of fully see each other
0: that when I think about men in my life, I think partly about my sons, to whom I would not yes. want to say yes. that. I mean, you know, there, are, there are responsibilities yes. that go in one direction. Yeah. So you're thinking about making making a space for the healthy expression of hostility as the basis yeah. for better relationships. Yeah. Do you see any of those in film or literature? And the examples in the book are beautifully analysed ones of dysfunction and discomfort and I was trying to I mean I think about this quite a lot in relation to romance you know where are the feminist romances what do they look like Mm -hmm. and I think Harold Shields writes them occasionally and pulls it Mm -hmm. off but it's it's actually pretty difficult and there aren't very many Mm -hmm. do you see successful father-daughter relationships in fiction or film
3: I mean some of the texts that I look at here I think kind of gesture towards that I mean Mm -hmm. Leave No Trace by Deborah Granik. Yeah. It's really interesting because so it's about a father who uh, suffers from PTSD and he lives in a kind of makeshift tent in the woods with his teenage daughter and they're sort of on the run from the authorities. Not exactly on the run, but they're, they're trying to live outside um social world. and um, And he's very loving and protective and he's taught her all these amazing kind of survival skills, but he also can't give her a life that she probably needs as a young girl. And the kind of arc of the film is that she, she realises that and she is sort of able to say that to him. Mm-hmm. So she, she feels you know, huge tenderness and compassion for his suffering, but ultimately she moves away. And I felt that in Ghost Wall, there's a really beautiful movement there as well where you know, this kind of terrible scenario between the father and the daughter ends with a kind of like note of a feeling of, of flourishing that you know mm. sometimes you have to reject the family in order to become yes. the person that you need and deserve to be. And in Leave No Trace, I thought that was very it was very beautifully rendered because it was an acknowledgement of her love at the same time as an acknowledgement of her being failed as a child by her yes. parent. And being able to say that and hold those two things together, you know, mm. I know that you love me. I know that you have failed me. I know that you've probably failed me because you were failed. Because everyone is failed by their parents. There's no such thing as perfect parenting. Everybody fails at it. I found that really amazing, the way she could Mm. kind of hold that in in that space. And Tony Erdman, I think, is also amazing for that. Because there's so much kind of aggression between the father and the daughter in that film. But it's aggression that is linked to playfulness and to kind of the, the wearing of masks and the kind of performing of certain roles and it felt that that film was such a kind of perfect Winnicott film because it it was about how play is is where you can kind of grow Mm -hmm. and also that being able to express your hostility and being able to to sort of see one another is the only way that you can resolve Mm -hmm. the completely inevitable feelings of you know anger that one feels in one's family so yeah I feel like that that's where that sort of amazing web of, yes. of mixed feelings can really yeah. be portrayed as in yeah. in fiction and in film
0: so it's play as a response to violence and yeah inequality. yeah
3: it's powerful yeah i think um adam phillips in his book on winnicott says it's kind of glossing winnicott and he says the opposite of play is not work yes. but coercion yes and that just seems yes that's such a, an important thing to yes. keep
0: reminding oneself of I think it's probably time for you to ask some of the
2: questions. (laughs) So I have to declare I'm a father, so one wonderful son, wonderful daughter. My question was, why did you write the book?
3: Why did I write the book? Yes. (laughs) For all the reasons I've said. Um, I wrote the book because... I mean, I am slightly going to repeat myself, I suppose, um, because I think that we are afraid to think about the role of fathers, even though, you know, historically feminism has always put together the the public and the private and sort of questioned the distinction between the public and the private realm, that's something that is difficult to do, and it's difficult to do for understandable reasons. It's hard to examine our own lives, it's hard to look at our own families, it's hard to kind of reckon with the ways in which, you know, power and abuses of power are not just things that happen out there, they're things that happen inside of us, and they're things that happen in very personal spaces. And I feel that we don't talk about fathers enough.
1: (laughs) I really enjoyed reading the book and was inspired to watch Tony Erdman at the weekend, which was incredible um, and bizarre. And I'm here with a friend, and on our way here, we were talking about our relationship with our fathers and that kind of sort of strange change that happens once you reach a certain age and your father reaches a certain age and the beginning, I guess, of a reversal of roles starts to occur and you maybe as a daughter start to feel that you are mothering your father... And I was really struck when reading the book that lots of the thinking that you're doing about fathers speaks to either very early child development or to a sort of teenage young female to father relationship Mm -hmm. so I was wondering about whether you had thought about the kind of the the life moment of being a daughter to a father and a father who's aging
3: Mm -hmm. yeah that's really it's a really good question there's a um I think I used it in the book there's um a book by Susan Bordeaux, who's a philosopher and a kind of historian of philosophy. She wrote a book a while ago called The Male Body uh, that's about gender, but it's largely written through a sort of story about her own father. And there were really beautiful descriptions in that book of all the different stages. So her, her kind of adoration of her father as a child, um, her fear of him as she was growing up because he was a pretty kind of domineering man. There's the kind of like primal scenes where, you know, he bursts in, into her bedroom because he thinks she's you know with a boyfriend um so she writes really interesting about that kind of you know the girl's emerging sexuality and the father's anxiety about that that I write a lot about in here um and then she also talks incredibly tenderly and beautifully about seeing her father age and and with her and she's sort of tending to him in his last days and it's it's fascinating partly because it, she then reflects on the mothering role that she's uh, you know then having towards him but that also for her it's this is one of the things I really love about that because she's unafraid to kind of talk about the you know the, the strange, troubling connotations of all all our relationships. You know that that different forms of love are not that far away from one another. So she talks about actually the feelings of kind of romance and 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 love that she feels towards her frail father, who she also hated for a long time in her life because he was you know frankly violent. So it's a book that looks at just the the kind of blurred boundaries of, of those different moments of a love relationship. And it's really wonderful. I can't recommend it enough. But, yeah, I mean, you're right that, you know, primarily I'm interested in fathers and daughters when the daughters are, are young women, partly because I'm interested in how... in the ways in which the kind of... the tropes of fatherhood that we see in so many films and so many TV programs of the father protecting the daughter and being a good father they may be genuinely felt, you know, I'm not saying that those fathers don't genuinely love and want to protect their daughters, but I make an argument that at work in that is also the kind of display and the kind of reification of norms of masculinity, which involve denying women's own sexual agency and being threatened, in fact, by female sexuality, such that the father has to not just protect the girls from all the terrible men out there who, you know, she does need protecting from, but that is also trying to kind of deny the girl her own kind of autonomy and subjectivity.
2: To a degree, any parent has to exercise a degree of control, discipline, power. It, one tries to be very well meaning um, in, in dealing with children. I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, even when you're very well meaning with your child, you uh, sort of screw up on things all the time. Mm-hmm. I would just be quite interested, if it's not a crude question, to ask for your top tips. I mean, you obviously, (laughs) without wanting to turn it into a self-help session either, but, um, I mean, you mentioned one about, you know, being able to perhaps sit sit comfortably with uh, a daughter developing her sexuality. So that might be one, but uh, I'd be interested, because it's just so normal that even well-meaning we uh, go wrong, I'd just be interested to hear... Um, some of your views
3: well i really don't have tips about anything because i don't think anyone really knows how to live um least all me but um i mean i i think it's phenomenally hard to be a parent and i would you know i I wouldn't want to underestimate that for a moment or or minimize that for a moment i mean i'm you know i'm reluctant to pronounce but but i think if there's if there's one thing that i think is really important (laughs) certainly in relation to girls it's to not let our completely justifiable fear of the violence done to women in the world trick us into thinking that that we have a right to push away women's own subjective longings and desires. And I think that's probably extremely hard to do as parents because because the world is terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying for girls and boys, but, you know, especially in this kind of moment, it's... Truly terrifying, I think, probably to be a parent. I think there is a lot of harm that's done in the name of protection, and I think trying to keep you know, mindful about that all of us is probably a really important thing to do. But I have no advice.
2: <laughs> I'll try to keep this short. Um, uh, first of all, thank you for writing this. It's a really important topic, and I think it's closely related to uh, feminism um, and not just to men. Uh, from various perspectives that I won't get into. Uh, one of the things that I think I should mention is that I come from two cultures. So I have this um, ability, you know, space to kind of bounce off different people and different ideas. And I was quite lucky that I was never in that situation where I couldn't talk about my daddy issues. And uh, one of the biggest issues with my father was that he did nothing. Literally, he... he, he Never showed up. He never He never did anything. Now, my mom always insisted that we should stay close with him, that we should keep calling him. that we should stay, And I was very close to his family. Until I decided that on, on just my books, simply because all my diplomas are in my father's surname, so I decided on my books I'll use my mom's surname. Apparently, this was a big insult to my father. However, every time I complained about my father, I was told the sentence, yeah, he's a man. As a child, I didn't have a, a, an opinion of my own, and I didn't really know what this meant. So I simply equated that men are like my father. When I was about 17, 18, Diana just died. And Mum and I were watching this program about Diana. And there was a segment how uh, Diana complained to the queen about Charles' adultery and all that. And the queen said, but he's a man. And I thought, blow neck from suburbs in, in Bosnia to palace in London. That's, you know, same sentence repeated. That's not a coincidence. This is now, you know, uh, an issue. Um, so th- that was kind of a similarity. And I said to my mom, you know, why do you want me to find one of these? And my mom said, what do you, one of what? And I said, a man. So yeah. We went then into a conversation, and then she, we were talking about her father, and, who actually in my life played the father role. It's just that he died when I was seven, so it wasn't uh, for a very long time. One of the, the other things is that my best friend is similar father issues, so I've always had that as well. So I was never, ever, there was never any stigma about you know, talking about my father, uh, except to my father because I never really wanted to. And one of the issues that I have with the media is um, every time there is an absent father, he's always forgiven by the child. I have to admit, I mean, yes, forgiveness is fine, but for me to now go after all these years and after everything that I take care of him now in his old age, I don't see it as my responsibility. And I know that I'm being judged on the grounds of that, but that is my life and that is the decision that I'm... Uh, going to make so the role that the society has played has actually become worse than the daddy issue because the father was, was there I kind of uh, learned to live without it and moved on however the, the, then the, the society the role that the society played in constantly judging and stuff like that so is your question
3: uh, about the what
2: absent I, father uh, no no not the absent father what I would really like to know, um, you know after you've done all of this do you think it's easier to define a bad father than a good father
3: No. (laughs) I mean, I think I, you know, I use the play, the phrase, you know, bad dads. And I mean, you know, when I was telling people what I was writing about, I was like, I'm writing a book about all the ways in which dads can be bad, you know, or writing about bad dads, because it's, you know, a sort of playful way of of saying I'm right. I'm trying to reckon with, you know, the harms that fathers can do. But, you know, I don't really, I mean, this comes back to what we were saying about like the the binaries versus the, the subtlety. You know, I, mostly I think people are not good or bad. I think most people are trying to live their lives, often having, dealing with their own traumas and bad parenting themselves. And I, I'm, I'm reluctant to speak in those terms, even though I sort of playfully use them. I don't really believe in good or bad people, except maybe for Donald Trump. But, I was going to um, say a couple of exceptions <laughs> yeah, today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's not really possible to define either of those things. Because we could, you know, if we wanted to, we could all define ourselves as either good or bad. But of course, the truth is more complicated. Of course, we're all just trying to find a way to respond to the intractable experience of being us.
0: In the book, you mention um, about not feeling sure of humiliation being used as a form of power, mm-hmm. and I thought this was really interesting um, in relation to the Virginia Woolf. Um, comment of the shift from jealousy to selfishness, mm-hmm. and perhaps how that might relate to um, humiliation and vulnerability. And I wondered if you had anything to say about that.
3: Yeah, so I use the phrase um, that something like I don't, be- I don't think I believe in humiliation as a tool for progress, which is in a section where I'm talking about you know some of the some of the phenomena that happened around me too, where you know people were calling people out and. I think the example was John Oliver sort of questioning Dustin Hoffman on stage about, you know, historical uh, claims about him harassing people on set. I was really intrigued by those sorts of moments where, on the one hand, it's very satisfying to see, especially a man, hold another man to account in public, which actually doesn't happen that often, certainly not when it's related to sexual violence or harassment or discrimination. But I am really... I am really suspicious of a response to the inequalities in the world, which is one of just exchanging the direction of the of the arrow of of um, of humiliation I, I, I think that's really really harmful so you know that relates to I mean one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is say you know the phrase daddy issues is always pinpointing the the girl it's always it's always putting the spotlight on women and their sexual choices and I'm trying to say let's turn that around and suggest that perhaps men have daughter issues that are worth exploring but I don't mean that in the sense of switching one humiliation for the other or one shame for the other I don't think anybody should be shamed for their sexual feelings or their their relationships I think you know what we need is sort of analysis and scrutiny, but that is trying to divest itself of humiliation, because humiliation just provokes humiliation. Humiliation provokes defensiveness and the desire to eject the humiliation by projecting it into another person. And that's what we're seeing everywhere. You know, part of what's happened in the Tory party is the little, the minute forms of humiliations of English public schools. And they're playing themselves out globally now. Hooray. I don't know if that quite answers your question. (laughs) Huge thanks to Sarah Moss and Catherine Angel. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.